Thanks for tuning in to listen to a sermon from Red Hill Church. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. You can find out more about Red Hill by visiting us online at www.redhill.church or by searching Red Hill Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope that today's sermon is encouraging to you as you try to follow Jesus in everyday life. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, church. If you guys would remain standing for the reading of Scripture, as most of you are. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dominic, and I'll be reading our passage today, which will be out of Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how could it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Thanks so much, Dom. Hey, good to be with you guys this morning. As, uh, if you uh, have been around for a long time, I want to make sure you know uh, the Linens are here, and they are old-time Red Hill. They are OG Red Hillers who live up in the frozen tundra of Dubuque, Iowa now, and uh, just in town for a visit, and um, just honored that you guys are here with us today. Thanks for making time. Thanks for, thanks for carving out time. It's fun, to, it's fun to like think back to the old days of Red Hill, meeting on campus and in basements and in hotel conference rooms and, <clears throat> you know, basically anywhere that we could find enough square footage to put our people and, and plug a speaker in. That's kind of where we met. When Sarah and I uh, first started talking about planting a church, we had a lot of conversations and, and a lot of thoughts about like what kind of a church we wanted to be. And we're, we're all shaped by both positive and negative experiences in church life. Like th- those experiences shape us and inform us as to what we want to do, what's important to us, and how we're going to sort of like act and move and have our being. And I, I got to tell you, it's much easier as a church planter, it's much easier to come up with the negative vision than the positive vision. In other words, it's much easier to say like, well, we know we're not gonna be this. Because those negative experiences, like they leave a deep imprint on us. You know, when we're mistreated or abused or neglected or not cared for or not loved or somehow betrayed by the people that are supposed to do all the good things for us, end up doing a negative thing to us, like it, it puts a stamp on us. When I was 30, I tore my ACL uh, in my right leg here. I was playing basketball. And uh, first mistake, and I, I intercepted this down court pass, right? Jump up, catch the pass, plant my foot, and I went to go back that way, and this knee decided to go that way, like just straight sideways. My knee bent in a direction that it is not supposed to bend, and, and I collapsed onto the court, and then uh, later would get up and play one more game because I knew I had done something to my knee and I wouldn't be doing anything for quite a while. And I was like, it's already jacked. You know, what's the worst that could happen? I mess it up more. That is much worse. It could have happened. Thankfully, God was merciful to me in my stupidity. Uh, my wife is amazing. She, I was like, you know, you turn 30 and all of a sudden you're like, it's, it's over. My life is completely over. <clears throat> I'm just old now. I don't do fun things anymore. I'm just old. And and Sarah was like, no, it's not an old person's injury. It's an athlete's injury. And I was like, oh, man, I'm married so good. 
Like, I just, I love her so hard. I married so good. And the rest of you guys, you're in the race for second place. My wife's incredible. And uh, so anyway, I went to the doctor, torn ACL, and end up, they're like, you have to ride a stationary bike to strengthen up your leg to get ready for the surgery because after the surgery, you're not going to be able to do much and your muscles are going to atrophy. It's going to be bad. And so there was a Baptist church that was local to us. It's very close. Uh, I don't want to mention the name because it's really not you know, all that important that you know that, but it's this huge church. And uh, they had signs all over the city that said the name of the church. This church loves Memphis, a big red heart, apostrophe S. The church's name in black, the heart was red, and, and the loves Memphis, the apostrophe S and loves Memphis were all in black. And they were, they were everywhere. There's this huge campaign going on. And I, I, uh, I, I was on staff at another church, not at that church, but I was like, well, I want to go over there because they had this huge family life center. I mean, when I say huge, I mean like Planet Fitness big family life center. I went into the lobby and there were uh, sets of wooden doors on either side of the lobby. So I, I like opened up one set and it's eight full court basketball courts. And there were two firefighters playing basketball in there. I go over to the other side and there are eight more full court basketball courts and nobody's on the, on the court. And so I go up to the front desk and there's this sweet little old lady sitting at the desk. I'm sure a volunteer just like serving the Lord and serving her church and I was like, hey, I, I told her my story and I, I got to ride a stationary bike and I don't want to spend thousands of dollars on a stationary bike because let's be honest, uh, I have uh, bars in my closet to hang my clothes on. I don't need to add other things to hang clothes on to dry. So I'm not getting that. And uh, I need to use a stationary bike. And she's like, are you a member here? And I was like, oh man, I'm about to make this lady's day. I'm about to run the stats up on this game where somebody in the community says, no, I'm not a member. And they take me through their like introduction to fitness class. And here's how you use all the equipment. And by the way, now we're going to share the gospel with you because we have you trapped in this room and you had to go through our orientation class. And I'm like, no, I'm not a member. And I'm kind of smiling because like, she doesn't know it, but I'm a pastor, so I sort of know how this particular game works. I used to be on staff at a church that had a family life center, and we saw a lot of people get saved through our weight uh, orientation class, like through our weightlifting orientation class. And I said, no, I'm not a member. And she said, I'm sorry, but this is all reserved for our members. And I was like, oh, that is really unfortunate. You guys are missing a huge opportunity. And I left. And, I, and every time I saw those signs, this church loves Memphis, I just thought to myself, like, do they, though? Or is it that they really want, like, do they love this community? Or do they really want this community to love them? And the distinction just, like, settled on me. And I started figuring out what I don't want to be. You know, it's really easy. It's really easy. We've all been a part of churches. We've all had experiences that shaped us where we we're like, well, I'm never going to be like that. But when you start driving down into the details and forcing yourself to articulate, but what do we want to be? Because nobody gets excited about what you're not going to be. Nobody wants to give their life to what you're not going to do. People want to get on board with you when you say, here's what we're going to do. Here's like the way that we want to move. And for us, Jeremiah 29, 7 became like a beacon for us. Jeremiah 29, God's speaking to the Israelites whom he has sent into bondage. And in verse 7, he says, seek the welfare or the prosperity or the peace, depending on what translation. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you as exiles and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, 
you find your welfare. In its peace, you find your peace. In its prosperity, you find your prosperity. The preceding verses, God says, basically, this is the Raiden Hollis translation. Y'all are gonna be here a while. You might as well buy a house. No sense in thinking about renting. It's gonna be a few generations. In fact, they would be in slavery longer than America has been in existence if you need a frame of reference for how long it was gonna be. Go ahead and get married, he says. Have kids, let your kids get married. Like just settle in and while you're there in bondage, while you're there as conquered people, seek the welfare of the place that you're in. And for us, pursuing the well-being, pursuing the peace, pursuing the prosperity of our city. It became like this clarion call to where we said that if for some reason God were to just bundle up Red Hill and pull Red Hill completely out of the community, that people who'd never been and people who couldn't even articulate our name would feel the loss. Like it's just not as good of a place to be as it used to be. It's something's different now, and I don't know for sure what it is. That's what we wanted, to pursue the well-being, to pursue the peace, to pursue the prosperity of our city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, knowing that when it thrives, we will thrive. And then I asked myself, why is it that God has tied the fate of the Israelites? When it is blessed, you will be blessed. When it has peace, you will have peace. When it prospers, you will prosper. Well, like, why did God tie the fate of his people to this place that they were sent to. Because I gotta tell you, I didn't wanna come to Edwardsville. In fact, I didn't wanna come to Illinois. It wasn't that I didn't wanna come to Edwardsville. I didn't know Edwardsville existed. When Sarah and I began the church planting journey, we had never, to my knowledge, ever heard the word Edwardsville or Glen Carbon. We didn't know anything about this place. We were gonna plant in St. Louis on the Missouri side of the river. Uh, we were bound and determined that that's where we were going. I had met with several catalysts and different leaders on the Missouri side trying to find the right place to go. And like for whatever reason, I just could not make any headway on identifying a target location, like a specific location in the St. Louis region. And uh, my buddy Noah Oldham was like, hey, will you go over to the Illinois side and meet with some catalysts over there? And I said, no. And he's like, why not? I said, I don't want to be in Illinois. I don't know anybody in Illinois. I don't know anything about Illinois. I had been to Illinois once, to the Metro East once. I got lost trying to get to a golf tournament that was in Chesterfield and ended up in East St. Louis at 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Pulled over at the first gas station because I didn't know where I was. And let me tell you something. It's not as nice as everybody says it is. That's all I'm saying about it. It was a, it was a very frightening experience. That was what I knew of the Metro East. East St. Louis, one o'clock on a Saturday morning. Not great. So Noah says, well, will you, will you pray about going over a meeting with a catalyst? And I was like, no. He's like, you want to even pray about it? I was like, no, I don't need to pray about it. I want to go to the Missouri side. I'm not going to pray about it. He's like, well, I set up the meeting. Like, will you go as a favor to me, as a friend? This is how you get me right here, guys. Like, if you need leverage in my life, I'm giving you the leverage. Like, as a friend, will you do it for me as a friend? And if it's not sinful, you, you got me there. Like, I'm on the hook, you got me. That's how you get you got me. Now, everybody knows, and if you want to manipulate me with that, be my guest. I trust the Lord to take care of those of you who would. Just saying. He's, he sees you when you're sleeping and when you're awake and when you're manipulating your pastor. It's not a threat. It's a fact. And so I was like, okay, fine, as a favor to you. I'll go and meet with these guys. And we met at the Chick-fil-A in Fairview Heights. 
And, and I had told Sarah and some other people, I was like, all I really want is somebody to like open up a map and be like, we need a church plant here. And I kid you not, after we had the Lord's chicken and the Lord's waffle fries and the Lord's Diet Coke, after we supped with Jesus there at Chick-fil-A, they opened up a map. I hadn't told Noah, I definitely hadn't told these guys I didn't even know. They opened up a map and they were like, you know, here are some places that we could use a church plant, but we probably wouldn't fit very well, like, you know, just first interaction in most of these places, but this place, you would fit great. And they circled Edwardsville and Glen Carbon on the map. And we were like, you know, well, tell us about the community. They told us about the community. And uh, we were talking to Eddie Pullen and Charles Campbell. And, and I, I asked Eddie, I was like, why isn't someone else planting a church there? This community sounds amazing. An incredible place to raise a family, great school system, like economic opportunity. Uh, like it's, it's a beautiful, like pride-filled community like parks, trails, all kinds of incredible. There's a college here. Like It's like everything that we had on our list, except we didn't know about this place, and we didn't know about the Metro East, and we didn't know anybody in Illinois. And uh, Eddie said, maybe the Lord's been saving it for you. He's like, because I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, we came here. Why is our fate tied to the fate of our community? And the, the answer is real simple. In the CSB, Jesus says, I deported you there. In the ESV, Jesus says, or God says, I have sent you there. That it is not an accident that Red Hill Church finds itself in this community. It's the divine plan of God that we are here. Because we didn't even know this place existed when we set out on our church planting journey. And I'm not saying like, oh, Sarah and I are special and that's what makes this place special. No, I'm saying Sarah and I are sent. We, we were sent to this place. And together, collectively, we have been sent to this place. The only thing that remains, the only question that remains is not whether or not we're going to have a presence here. It's not whether or not God has put us here. It's what kind of presence we're going to have in this community. What will it be like for our community to have us as a church present, living among them, making our dwelling among them? Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Dom just read it for us. I'm going to walk through it again. We're going to walk through this passage, and then I want to talk to you about uh, just... Five things that I think will define our efforts to bless the community. That I, I guess I should say that I hope will define our efforts to bless the community. Because the truth is, is that it'll be up to us. You know what I'm saying? It's not, a, it's not up to me. It's not up to Sarah. It's not up to individually to you. It's up to us collectively to decide what kind of a church we're going to be. But in verses 13 through 16, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, or your translation might say more accurately, if the salt were to lose its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, we didn't need that light, but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Bottom line, God has sent us to be salt and light. In, uh, in ancient Israel, salt was used sometimes as a flavoring, every great now and then as a fertilizer. Primarily, it was used as a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators, so what they would do is they'd take a piece of meat, they would 
cover it in salt, and in that way they would prevent and slow down the decay of the meat so they could save it in that way. If the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, what's it good for? How can it be made salty again? The truth is that salt is always salt. Salt is a stable compound. You don't, you know, you don't need something to keep salt as salt, but this salt wasn't derived from the evaporation of salt water. It was actually found in salt marshes, which means it carried with it a lot of impurities. It wasn't just pure salt. It had other stuff in it. The actual salt that was in it was more soluble than the impurities that were in it. This is like chemistry lesson for everybody. I'm having to read my notes because it may surprise you to know that I did not major in chemistry in college or anything like it. So it can, anyway, it contained a lot of impurities and the salt could be leached out, which would leave behind a residue that had forced it to lose, had, does anybody need an anointing touch? I'm feeling it right now. This is your moment. No? Okay. I offered. Okay, it's not the foot. So it leaves behind a residue that made it lose its intended usefulness. In other words, what's left can't be used for what it was intended to be used for. The Israelites, even to this day, the ones who have the flat roof where like community gatherings take place, they will take this type of salt and still throw it on the tops of their roof. You know why? Because it hardens the soil that's up there, preventing leaks, preventing anything from getting through. Thought about this and I was like, so, you know, God's going to use his people either as a preservative for a decaying community around them or as something that gets trampled underfoot and only serves to make the ground harder. And observationally, I was like, man, this is really true. That the, the people of God either serve as this powerful actor on a community that is rotting away or as a thing that God leverages because it lost its intended usefulness to cause the soil to just get harder and harder and harder. In other words, God's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to accomplish his purposes with his people. And if we're not used for the intended operation, he will still find a usefulness for us. We're also supposed to be light. This is like pretty obvious and clear, I think. It's light. We have a living example of it. We're intended to be a kingdom beacon, like a kingdom beacon, lighting up the way, lighting up the truth, lighting up the life, making the invisible kingdom visible by living out kingdom norms in the everyday lives of kingdom people. We're supposed to take the culture and the values of heaven, live them out in the everyday life that we experience and in the fellowship that we share, and in this way, we become kingdom witnesses. We don't become kingdom witnesses by knowing a lot of Bible verses. We don't become kingdom witnesses by going to church on Sunday. We become kingdom witnesses by living out kingdom values. We, li we live out the culture, the norms, and the values of the kingdom in the midst of a dark world. And in that way, we become a beacon of light. Light also, by the way, impacts darkness. We have to be braced for the kickback. John 3, 19, um, Jesus has some kind of words of warning for his people. He says this, 
This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. G.K. Chesterton, he said that followers of Jesus should be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and constantly in trouble. I really, I like, I really like that. I don't know. I, I think it's the rule breaker inside of me that's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's kick up some dust. But then when you read the book of Acts, what happens in the book of Acts? These followers of Jesus go in and start telling people about Jesus and it changes economies and it causes riots and it makes cities gather in the stadium, like in the local stadium, chanting for hours their adoration of their idol, their affinity and affection and love for the idol that they worship. And how did it all happen? Because some regular people who loved Jesus came in and started telling other people about the love of Jesus, about the power of Jesus, about the truth that it was our sin that sent him to the cross, that he had to pay a debt for us, and that he wants us to surrender our lives to him, we're going to get into trouble as kingdom witnesses. When we get into trouble as kingdom witnesses, by the way, this is a little, just one little bonus piece of information. We have to maintain our kingdom witness. You know what I'm saying? Like if you get into trouble as a follower of Jesus, and then your response to the pain is unlike a follower of Jesus, then you got into trouble for nothing. You, you, you went through the pain for nothing. That's the hard part. That's one of the parts why we need each other. So five things that are gonna characterize our efforts to bless the community, I hope. Number one, this is gonna be a list for those of you who like taking notes. This, today's your day. I don't usually do this, but today's your day. Number one, our actions are initiated by received love. Our actions are initiated by received love. Flip over to 1 John 1 John is towards the end of your Bible, right before 2 John. Thank you for that as a negative charge for a few of you. Some of you are like, a negative charge? Listen to the podcast. That's all I'm going to say. 1 John, and uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. John says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar, for the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our actions are initiated by received love. In other words, we begin not because we greatly love our community, but because we have been greatly loved by God. We start first as people who are loved. We start first as people who have been given more love than we could possibly ever need, more love than we could possibly ever comprehend, more love than we were designed to contain. We begin as loved people, greatly loved people. Several years ago, when we were about to go, like we were planning for the third Route 66 festival that Red Hill was going to be a part of, um, and, and I, I met with the leaders of the Parks and Rec Department in Edwardsville, sat down with their team, and they were like, let's talk about the Route 66 Festival. We're starting to plan it, and we want to know, like, how does Red Hill want to be involved, and what all do you want to do? So I started running down a list of things that we wanted to do, like we're going to hire a face painter, and um, we're going to have a booth, and we'll have cornhole out, and we're going to give some stuff away. We're going to give handheld fans out, and uh, then we're also going to rent these, like, 
cooling, misting fans because it can get hot in those festivals and place for people to like hang around. And so they're writing all this stuff down and, and the, the lady who's like taking the notes and kind of running the meeting, she stops and she's like, okay, I, I was talking to the team about this earlier and, and I, I just want to know, what do you want? And I, I, I kid you not, it was one of the many times in my life where I was just completely lost in the conversation. I was like, I, I don't understand the question. She's like, what do you want? I was like, I don't, I don't want anything. You asked me what we were going to do. This is what we're going to do. She's like, okay, yeah, but nobody does stuff like this unless they expect us to do something for them. So why don't you just tell me now what your church wants, and then I'll tell you whether or not we can do that for you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you fell into my trap. I didn't say that part. I just thought that part. I was like, <laughs> this is when people see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And I was, I was, like, I was like, let me just tell you what's going on here. Our church has been loved by God more than we can contain. We can't keep it inside the walls of whatever facility we're meeting in. We can't contain it inside of the hearts that God put inside of our chests. So it spills out and it falls over the top of us because believe it or not, an encounter with you is the only spiritual interaction some people will ever have in their whole lives. An encounter with you is their only opportunity to hear the gospel in their whole lives. Just you. And so I said, we've been loved in such a way that we believe it's supposed to make us great lovers of others. And love doesn't say, I will do for you so that you will do for me. Love says, I will do for you. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll give to you. I'll celebrate you. I will honor you. Because love has nothing to do with its recipient. It originates somewhere else and pours out. No one can ever stop you from loving another person, ever. They can do things that make it more difficult. But when you overcome the difficulties, you know what happens? Your love actually gets stronger, purer, and better. Love doesn't start with the recipient of love. Love starts somewhere else. So I said, we don't want anything from you. And in fact, we don't actually believe the community has something that we need because our needs have been met by a God who loved us. And then I shared the gospel with her. And she goes, someday I'm going to surprise you and I'm going to come to your church. And I said, oh, you don't want to do that. And she was like, um, like, why not? And I was like, because right now, you get to do whatever you want on a Sunday morning. And if you come to my church and experience the love of Jesus and the love of people just one time, your life is going to be turned upside down. You will be forever changed. You'll never have the lazy Sunday morning back again. You will have found something infinitely better. Now, it didn't work out. She has not ever visited. So I don't know that it was the best strategy as far as an invitation goes to say you don't want to do that. But I stand by my statement. We don't love our community based on its merit. In other words, we don't love them because they deserve it. 
We don't love them based on alignment. In other words, we don't love them because they agree with us. We don't love them based on effort. In other words, they don't have to earn it. We act because God acted. We love because God has loved. That's why we do it. Um, Number two, I like this one. Can't wait for the look on some of your faces. We will use termites and tornadoes. We'll use termites and tornadoes. Tornadoes, that's when a spiral of tomatoes carves a path through a community wreaking havoc and catch up everywhere. Now, we'll use termites and tornadoes. Do you know termites cause excuse me, $30 billion worth of damage in the world annually? $30 billion worth of damage. Tornadoes, a paltry $400 million not even remotely close to as much damage. Tornadoes get all the press. Termites do a tremendous amount of damage. We'll use termites and tornadoes. In other words, we're going to use grains of salt and city-defining beacons of light. We'll use small, barely noticed acts, small, barely noticed words of kindness, small and barely noticed donations, small little choices by all of us who are small and insignificant little people just living everyday life, trying to make an everyday impact, trying to embody kingdom values in specific moments with specific opportunities. In other words, the overwhelming majority of what's going to define our blessing of the community is just the way that you live as a neighbor, as a coworker, as an employer, uh, as a student, as a teacher, as a friend. Just how you actually live your life. Small little choices that make small little impacts compound to do big things. But we'll also use shock and awe, baby. Shock and awe. That's what I'm talking about. Like, we're going to rent the kangaroos. And for those of you who weren't around, the very first thing we did in our community was host this movie at the park. And we asked them, what can we do at the movie at the park? And they said, you can do anything. And I was like, you don't want to say that to me. She said, you can do anything. And I was like, awesome, what's the movie? And it was Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And some of you have never heard this story. And this is one of our Hall of Faith stories. It's like one of the great Red Hill moments in history. And so we sat around. I think there were six of us at the Moore's table. And we were like, all right, this movie is about a kid who loves Australia. What do you think of when you think of Australia? Some feedback. What do you think of? Koalas, kangaroos. Yeah, animals, right? You think of kangaroos and aborigines and and accents and the crocodile hunter, crocodile Dundee and all kinds of stuff like that. Kangaroos came up. and, And I said, what if we rent a kangaroo? And I don't remember who it was, but somebody said, you can't rent kangaroos. And, and my response was, they're not unicorns, okay? They exist. They're real things. I don't know if we can find one, and, and if we find one, I don't know if we can afford one, but they are real. And so we began a, our, like probably our first prayer campaign, honestly. And the first prayer campaign was, God, would you provide a kangaroo for us? And the moment I knew I was a church planter was when I opened up my Google box and I typed in, Rent a kangaroo in St. Louis. 
some weird results. I'm not going to lie, you know. And then we started talking to people because this is what you do when you need something and you don't have it. You talk to the Lord. You search the internet. You talk to every person that you know and you go, we want to find this thing and we want to use it for the glory of God and the good of our community. And so uh, it was actually Sarah's dad who connected us with a dude named Smooth. And Smooth, yeah, that's his name. Smooth, uh, when I met Smooth, one of the first things he did was show me a picture of himself as a five-year-old kid and his brother, who was nine at the time, and he was riding on the back of a bear that his brother was walking with a leash. And I was like, I want to be your best friend. Like, the stories that you have have to be amazing. Smooth was an incredible guy. In the end, we didn't get one kangaroo. We got three kangaroos and a whole bunch of little animals. We had to go back to the city and be like, we got kangaroos. And they were like, uh, we don't know if you can do kangaroos. And I was like, I remember I'm like, when you said you can do whatever you want. They were like, we're going to have to talk to somebody that has more authority in the city than us because we don't think there have ever been live animals allowed in city park as like a petting zoo thing. And so anyway, we ended up getting permission. It was awesome. We, we then had to make a decision because we had almost no money. Like, it's like, there's like six adults, some kids, and a few dogs. And some of the kids have moved off, and some of the dogs have died, you know, and some of the people are gone now. We didn't, like, we didn't have a lot of money, and it was going to be a lot of money to do this. It's a significant bite into our budget. I called one of our overseers, and I was like, what do you think? And he was like, you have to do it. Like, you have to make that move. You have to do it because if you do it, you become that church. And I was like, what do you mean, that church? And he goes, you know, people will not know who you are. But they'll be like, you know, that church that, and then fill in the blank with this shock and awe, crazy thing that they did. And I was like, all right, we got to do it. So we did it, and it was amazing, and it was fun. Uh, I was never allowed to pet the kangaroos, which I'm still disappointed about. I wanted to put the kangaroos in Red Hill t-shirts, and Smooth was like, you can do it, but they're just going to rip them off. Like, this kangaroo actually lives in our house. And I was like, (laughs) that's amazing. I don't know. I don't even know what to say to that. He's like, we try to put shirts on him, and he just won't, he won't do it. Like, he just, he rips them to shreds. It's like, it's like Hulk Hogan, you know, like, you got to eat your vitamins. Oh, yeah. You know, that, sorry, that was macho man. But anyway, you got what I'm saying. Shock and awe, shock and awe events, shock and awe activities, shock and awe partnerships. Like if we show up to do something, we want to do it. We want to show up in the pandemic and give away some food. So we got to give away over a million pounds of food. The only way that we do that, by the way, is if more than just like more than just me and Sarah show up, like we had dozens upon dozens of volunteers who came and participated with us in that. It takes work. It takes effort to do those kinds of things. It takes people showing up. And it's important for us to say we want to strike a balance here because we have in this passage in Matthew 5, 16, people are going to see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then like the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing when you're giving. Like let it all be done in secret. Let it all be done anonymously. So we strike a balance in those things and we say that it's always about giving the glory to God. It's always about helping people see the beauty of God, the love of God, the family of God, the purposes of God, the salvation of God, like 
to put him on display, not to put ourselves on display. You know, the Tower of Babel was wrong, not because it was an engineering thing, not because it was a problem with mankind coming together, but because they intended to make a name for themselves, directly disobeying God's commands to scatter, multiply, and fill the earth. They said, let's gather together in one place and let's make a name for ourselves. Instead, the Christian life's about making much of Jesus. Our church has to be about making much of Jesus. So we'll use termites and tornadoes. Number three, our response will be yes, comma, and dot, dot, dot. This is a technique that's used in, uh, in improv. So like when someone's like, you know, what do you think about this? You say yes, and, and you just keep adding on to it. We want to be Macedonian givers. You flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is like the preeminent passage on giving, in my opinion, in the Bible. This is the exemplary passage for what giving is supposed to be like. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing to a church that is more like the community that we find ourselves in, the Glen Ed community, than an impoverished third world community. He's writing to a community of affluence, but he's writing about a community that was in poverty. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. We want to give ourselves first to God. And then by his will to the community that he put us in. Because if you give your heart, your wallet comes with it. If you give your heart, your will comes with it. If you give your heart, your effort comes with it. If you give your heart and someone says, we need you to make a sacrifice, you respond by saying, what sacrifice? If I needed to lay down my life for my family in some strange contrived scenario... It would be an honor and a joy for me to give all that I have and am that others might live. That those whom I love might be able to go on. That's what love does. There's no sacrifice too great. Generosity without strings is disorienting to people who don't have Jesus. They don't really understand it. They're not sure what's going on with it. And I just wonder what would be the story told at water coolers and coffee shops and community meetings if it was known that there was a church that would say yes and to every problem that was presented to it, to every opportunity that was given to it. A church that would say, yeah, we'll find a way to do that. We'll figure out how to do that. And before we begin to say we have a limited budget and we have a small number of people, let's remember that it was like 
less than 150 people that turned the whole world upside down. And it was the Apostle Paul who said of his own ministry, without a car, without an airplane, without a telephone, and without the internet, who said of his own ministry, everyone in Asia has heard the gospel. Everyone in Asia has had an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Before we come with our excuses, let's come with our faith. Before we come with our justifications, let's come as justified people. Before we come with what's in our hands, let's remember what's in God's hands. I want our church to be known as a radically and actively generous people. Radically and actively generous. I want to put to the test whether or not we can outgive God. I want to put to the test this basic premise that I have that if we will live with open hands with our time, our talent, our treasures, and our people, God will honor us by making sure that we always have time, talent, treasures, and people to give. I want to put to the test whether or not it's true that we could actually give ourselves into non-existence. Because I don't think you can. It only happened once. In the history of mankind, it only happened once. And you know what happened? He was resurrected from non-existence and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Not a bad trade. Not a bad gig. Our response will be yes and dot, dot, dot. Number four, like tagging onto that, we're going to live with faith-filled, open-handed generosity. Faith-filled, open-handed generosity in a community that is focused on affluence, on personal security, on personal wealth, and on personal achievement, being generous might be the single most countercultural thing we could be. Being a generous people. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, Jesus tells the story of the rich young ruler. You're probably familiar with it. Basically, a guy who's a rich young ruler, which is why it's known as that's. That's how the story's known. Comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, seeing his heart, says, well, you have to obey the commandments. And the rich young ruler's like, no problem. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Jesus is like, okay. <sighs> he didn't want the carrot. Here comes the stick. You know what I'm saying? He goes, sell everything that you own. Give it all to the poor. Come and follow me. And the Bible says the man went away sad because... He had many possessions. And then in Luke chapter 19, we find the story of Zacchaeus, who had been stealing and accumulating wealth for himself. And without being prompted by Jesus, he says, I'm going to repay everything I've ever taken, multiplied over time, and whatever's left, I'm giving half of it away. You know what's great? Is Jesus doesn't look at him and say, not good enough. Isn't that cool? When we're consumed with possessing what we have, Jesus says, you have to give me everything. When we live open-handed and generous with what we have, Jesus just says, salvation has come to this house. This is a changed person. This is a changed life. We're going to choose the path of Zacchaeus, not the rich young ruler. Exodus 4 gives us another wonderful model for what Jesus wants and expects us to give. Moses is in this Let's call it a debate with God. It's always an interesting thing. 
It's what most of my prayer life looks like and probably yours as well. Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know what you ought to be doing? I can tell you what you ought to be doing. Here's what you need to be doing, and I don't understand why you're not doing it. And if you would just do this, everything would be right in my world, and that's what I want, so I'm going to keep going on and on about this. And Moses says, I don't want to go. God says, you're going to go. And Moses says, I can't talk very good. And God says, I made your tongue, and I'm not concerned about that, and I'll give you Aaron. And Moses is like, yeah, but I am just out here. I'm just a shepherd. Who, like, how are you going to validate that I'm actually representing you? Who am I supposed to tell them? And he says, I am that I am. And Moses is like, I'm going to need something that proves that you're with me. And God says, what's in your hand? And Moses is like, well, I just have a stick. Like, that's what I have in my, like, a staff. I, I have a stick. And God says, put it on the ground. The question for us as a church is not going to be, let's come up with all these crazy things that have nothing to do with us that have no part in our fellowship and figure out how we can implement them in our community. That is the kind of thing that we do when we don't want to face off with our own idolatry. The question for us, as far as blessing the community, is just this one simple question that God asks of Moses in Exodus 4:2: What's in your hand? And the question is, will you open it or will you close it? Will you lay it down at my command or will you seek to keep it for yourself? We're not a business. Our church is not a business. We're not going to operate like a business. We are not, we're not going to make business decisions. We're gonna make kingdom decisions. And I know the kickback to this is like, yes, but we do business. We certainly do, but we should do it like kingdom people with kingdom values in mind. Not like business people. Sarah and I didn't plant this church to amass a giant bank account personally or to amass a giant bank account for our church. That's not what it's about. We're an outpost of heaven. We are a forward operating base of the kingdom of God. Our job is not to amass influence or wealth. Our job is to represent the values and the norms of our king to embody his will on earth as it is in heaven. We're not trying to build an income. We're not trying to build a nest egg. We are certainly not trying to build bigger barns to hold on to our extra. There's this moment in John chapter 12 when Jesus is about to be crucified and one of his followers gets down on her hands and knees and takes this expensive nard, this perfume, the value of which was a year's salary and pours it out on her feet, on Jesus' feet, excuse me, not on her feet, on his feet, anointing him. And you know what happens? Judas who is the money keeper. In John, Judas is the one who gives voice to it. In the other gospels, there's some grumbling about it from other people, but I think Judas is the instigator of the grumbling. But grumbling always has an instigator. Judas says, this could have been used better. This could have been used to serve the poor. But you know what the truth was? The truth, Jesus identifies in his word. 
was that Judas liked to steal money from the purse. And that's why he said it. And everybody else grumbled. All the disciples, the Pharisees who were there, why wasn't this given to the poor? When a gift is given to honor Jesus, Jesus is honored by the gift. We'll have to make decisions, right? I mean, she only had one bottle of this stuff. And if she had, as an offering to Jesus, wanted to sell it and give the money to the poor, I'm sure Jesus would have been honored by that decision. But she somehow knew what was coming. She's anointing me for my burial because he wouldn't have time to be anointed before his burial. He'd be taken from the cross and put in a tomb just for a little bit. The disciples and the Pharisees grumbled along. Generous people just don't ever grumble. <laughs> they, don't, they don't ever grumble. Generous people also get great stories. They get great stories. I'm going to tell you another story because I've got the microphone and you're a captive audience and I like telling stories. So, Me and my buddy Grant Jessen, my first adult friend. You remember your first adult friend? Like you, you start your adult life, you have an adult job and someone who's an older adult than you is like, hey, you seem like a cool person. Let's be buddies. And you're like, I made it. This is it. Now I'm grown up. We used to go to McDonald's a lot, thereby proving our adulthood. Your 20s, you can eat hot circles of garbage and you're fine. You know, it's like, you just whatever. And so we're sitting there and um, we're hanging out and, and we're sitting in the McDonald's. They used to be laid out in a very specific way where you could sit in one booth that was by a set of doors and you're looking right at back where the toilets are, like back where the bathrooms are. And there was always a booth that was built into that wall right there. And so I'm sitting facing the restrooms. Grant's facing the other way. And there's a guy sitting at the booth by himself. He's a bigger guy. He's about my height and about plus 100 pounds. Uh, not, not a muscular guy, per se, you know, like not, not a muscular guy at all, per se. He's a large fella um, as far as uh, the girth was concerned. And he's sitting there, and we had prayed before we were eating, and we're eating our food. And I, and, and I really like messing with people. Like, it's so much fun to just make it real awkward and sort of see what happens. Like, I just like chaos, I guess. And so Grant is the exact opposite of me. Extremely type A, OCD, everything's just so. The salt and the pepper have to be in the perfect place. And, and that's like my, one of my favorite friends is that kind of a person, just to like twist the pictures on their desk and stuff. And so I'm sitting there. And I was like, Grant, there's a dude back by the bathrooms who is staring at me, because I kid you not, Scott, it, we're about this far apart, and I'm eating, and this dude's just doing this. I was like, he's staring at me. And he's, Grant's like, don't look at him. Don't look at him. I'm like, I'm looking at him, man. I'm looking at him. I can't stop looking at him. And all of a sudden, this guy starts praying, but not praying like a normal person would pray with their head bowed or their eyes closed or even like, you know, like, you know, thank you, God, like, like sort of covering their face a little bit, Dom. This is what he's doing. He's like looking dead at me. He's going, God, I'm just so hungry. I'm just hungry, God. And, and then I was like, I was like, Grant, he's praying. And Grant's like, ah. And, I, and then the guy starts escalating. His voice volume starts increasing. He's like, and God, I have hypoglycemia. And if I don't get some food, I might die. And I looked at Grant and I said, 
I'm going to invite him over. He's like, don't do it. Don't you dare do it. I was like, I'm going to invite him over. And I was like, hey, man. I said, hey, come over here. And there's nobody else in McDonald's because it's McDonald's. So you just go to the drive-thru because you don't want anybody to know you've been there. And he's like, me? I was like, yeah, you, the guy. I don't know if you're praying to me or to God, but you're boring holes through my head with the intensity of your gaze. Come over here. So the guy comes over. And I was like, what's your story, man? And he goes, I just got out of the military. And I was like, really? I said, what did you do in the military? And he goes, I was a sniper. And I'm, I'm not kidding, guys. He was easily three bills. And five, five if he was a, if he was a foot. I mean, just a really, like, not what I would consider to be the typical sniper's body. You know what I'm saying? Not going to be a stealthy fella. And he had with him this electric blue fanny pack that had, like, one of those half-inch little nylon bands around it with a tiny little plastic clip. And I kid you not, guys, I couldn't resist myself. I said, was that your sniper pack? And he goes, yeah. I was like, it looks like a standard issue military kind of thing. And he's like, yeah, it is. And I was like, hey, man, I, I heard you praying, I think, over there. He's like, oh, you heard that? I was like, yeah, I think, I think everybody heard it. In fact, you guys probably heard it when it was happening and just didn't, and you're like, something's going on somewhere. Someone's in trouble. They need food. I said, can I get you something to eat? He's like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. And I said, okay, great. What do you want? He's like, I'll take a number seven. I was like, oh, this man, he knows his stuff. He's been to McDonald's before, you know? And so I'm walking off, and he goes, oh. And I usually like that supersized. I was like, you got it, Bubba, right? So I went. I got him the meal. We're coming out, and Grant was like, he's like, hey, first of all, number one, don't ever do that to me again. He's like, I was freaking out. I just, that guy's going to kill us for sure. He goes, uh, number two, he said, I talked to the McDonald's staff, and that guy is not a sniper. I was like, yeah, Grant, I knew he wasn't a sniper. <laughs> like, did you actually think he was a sniper? He's like, he's not a sniper. He just got out of jail. The Greyhound bus lets out here, and these guys that get out of jail, this is like the first stop. This is where they come. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, number three, that guy took advantage of you. He took advantage of you but I thought it was really cool of you just to like give him what he asked for. And, and the Lord just like sparked something inside of me. Look, there've been a million times when I walk past somebody in need, okay? Like a billion that I could tell you, they're just not as good of a story, but I'm not a, I'm not a hero who does this all the time or something. But I, here's what the Lord impressed on me. When you've decided to give whatever is needed, then nobody can ask you for too much. When you've decided to help somebody, to love somebody, to give to them, there's really not something that you go like, that's a bridge too far. You already decided. The Macedonians gave their heart. They were in a severe test of affliction and in extreme poverty. And Paul says, you know what happens when a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty are stirred up in the pot of a heart of a believer in Jesus? Overflowing generosity started pouring out, so much so that without being prompted, without being asked, they just kept giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. That's what I want for our church. The fifth thing is this. We will give encouragement and kindness a voice. Blessing the community is about more than just what we say. 
It's about more than just our words, but it's not less than that. It's not less than that. Look at Matthew 12, 34 with me. Matthew 12, 34, such a, such a tough little verse. In verse 33, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you're evil? And then this little phrase, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You know what that means? If you don't like the words that are coming out of your mouth, you have to check what's being put into your heart. If you hang around with someone who tells a lot of perverted jokes, they're probably putting perversion into their heart. If you hang around with someone whose words are always sharp and angry and biting, they're probably filling their heart with frustration irritation and anger because the Bible tells us when life squeezes us, your heart is going to overflow and something's going to come out of your mouth. In fact, we call it an unguarded moment when your mouth beats the filter in your brain and you say something and you're like, I don't know why I said that. Yeah, you do. This is what's in your heart. It's what's in your heart. We have a word for the culture as it is right now, cancel culture. In a world that's well-versed in frustration, hatred, and outrage, we should have lips that bear a bountiful harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. Our lips and our lives, but our lips should be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self We're going to go handheld. I don't know how long the cord's going to be, but we're going to go handheld here. Our lips. It's okay to laugh every now and then, even in the middle of a serious moment. You can hold two things at the same time. But our lips should be bearing a bountiful harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. As the people of God, we're going to face different variations of the same temptations that have always faced the people of God. Fear. The fear that makes us faithless. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Or scroll there in your app. Hebrews 10, 37 through 39. It says, for yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. And this verse, like, this verse, sometimes, like, I don't know. It, like, I just, like, it just makes me want to, like, 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 flex. Like, come on. Like, let's go. Like, put it on a flag. Put it on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. Get it tattooed on my arm or something like that. Like, come on, like, Put it in my veins is how I feel about this one. But we are not of those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. I'm like, oh, look, that if that doesn't make your blood pump just a little bit, if that doesn't make you say, like, that's what I want for my life, I don't want to be among those who draw back in fear. 
I don't want to be counted among the cowardly who say it's too hard, it's too costly, it's too difficult, it's too tempting. It's, it's like, it's just, just there's, there's so many excuses. There's just so many reasons. Like, it's just, I don't want to. I want to be among those who have faith. I want to be counted among those who have faith. We've got to face off with the fear that makes us selfish, faithless, lazy, and apathetic. We've got to face off with it. We've got to look that demon right in the eyes and say, I'm not drawing back from you. I'm pressing forward in faith. We're moving forward in faith. We have to speak the truth of God's word to our fear-filled hearts. Long time ago, we would make these things called bulletins for our church. And then we were like, you know what? Let's just put it in digital form, and then we don't have to spend any money on printing. But the very first preview gathering that we had, we had a little bulletin, a little program, and we put this verse on it, Luke 12, 32. And I want to say this to all of us. Hi, Phoebe. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. You're going to feel fear. Don't be afraid. Face off with the fear. Face off with your doubt. Face off with your hesitation. Face off with your apathy. Face off with your laziness. Face off with the critical spirit that grows inside of all of us and say, I'm not drawing back because it's my Father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom. He said it to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. The older brother's like, you won't even give me a goat. You won't do this for me. You won't do this for me. And he said, all that I have is yours. How would we live if we actually believed that as a family? How would we live if we knew we would have each other's back if things went sideways in our lives? I want to give it all. There's this guy I like, C.T. Studd. He was a missionary. He was actually like the LeBron James of his generation, but in cricket. He was a world-famous cricketer, really, really good at cricket. His family was super wealthy. He stood to receive a huge inheritance and uh, instead opted into the ministry. And an uh, incredible life story, but he wrote this poem that I want to read for you guys. And before I read it, I want to say this, like, when he got married, he gave one-third of his inheritance away to Hudson Taylor, who was doing missions in Africa. He gave one-third away to George Mueller, who was running orphanages in England. He gave one-third as a dowry, as a wedding gift to his wife. So a third of it he just gave to his bride, said, this, this third is for you. And his bride, because he married well, his bride said, let's... Heed the call of the rich young ruler. Let's make up what he was lacking, and let's give it all away. So this guy who was wealthy beyond imagination for his generation gave it all away, and he and his wife started their lives completely financially impoverished because of it. God doesn't call everyone to that. God's not asking everyone to do that. But when we see stories of great faith like that, it should like it should stir something up inside of us. So you can go ahead and start the music here, okay? You, you missed my subliminal cue. <laughs> we were talking about it before the service. I should have been more uh, overt with my subliminal action.
So this is a, by C.T. Studd. He wrote this poem. It's called Only One Life. I've referenced it before. You may have read it yourself before. But I just I, I want you like to just take a moment to consider your own life, to consider our church's life, to consider the way that we're going to try to bless our community, consider the creativity that lives just inside of the room right now, the things that we could do if we would step up and step forward and try. Just try. If we would say we're going to live with an open hand. Here's what he says. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing me in my daily life. Only one life, twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let us say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I will say it was worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's only been one person in the history of the world who gave every breath to the glory of God. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father in power. And you and I are his apprentices, learning to become like him, being conformed by his spirit into his image. This is the calling on us. We have been planted here for the purpose of being here. One of my best friends, Jason Irvin, who went to the be with the Lord this last year, he used to say this. I really like it. He used to say, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. Salt and light. Let's pray together. God, we lay before you our hopes and our dreams, our aspirations, our desires because we're made of dust and we live in the dirt. You're made of you. You live in the heavens. You are other 
holy. Would you take the simple little stick that we get to carry around and help us to loosen our grip? Would you give us eyes that can see the community as you see it? Hands that would serve the community as you serve it. Feet that would go to the community as you go to it. Lips that would speak to the community as you would speak to it. And hearts that would love the community as you love it. And gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Help us to love as we've been loved, to serve as we've been served, to give as we have received, and help us to operate first as recipients. As people who know what it feels like to get what we don't deserve what we couldn't earn. I want to invite you now, church family, to take a moment where you are to respond by taking the Lord's Supper, to respond to the one who gave it all for you. And to dream. What could we do? What would God invite us to do? When you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper. If you want to give in the box, you can. You can give online. The band will come back up and we'll sing together in just a few minutes.